This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. Today, we are going to be looking at the contact experiences of Robert Renaud, who began having contact with space beings in 1961, and whose contacts continued up into the 21st century. Now, I may be wrong, and I'm sure some of you will correct me if I am, but this might be the longest stretch of contactism out there for one person to have all of these encounters. Now, my initial plan was to talk about a UFO writer named John Dean, but as I got into Dean's book, most of what he was doing was talking about Renaud's experiences. So I moved Renaud up in the schedule from, I think, February and decided we should just cover him right now. And as has been the case with several of our topics here in 2022, this is going to be a multi-part story because I think that's really the only way to give Renaud's encounters the space they need because there is a lot here. Even, even focusing on the high points, there is a lot here, um, really a lot, as we'll see. <laughs> So who was Robert Renaud, Bob Renaud? There isn't much biographical information out there, but and this is unfortunate, it appears that he passed away a few months ago in September 2022, and his obituary gives us some non-saucer background. Robert Paul Renaud was 79 and lived in Washington, Massachusetts when he passed away. He was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts on September 10th, 1942. His parents were Walter and Lillian Renaud. He attended Notre Dame Elementary School and was a 1960 graduate of St. Joseph's High School. For 30 years, he was an electrician for General Electric. He was a ham radio operator and enjoyed computers and electronics. He was a former member of Christian Assembly Church, and he liked stock car drag racing and bowling. He's survived by a son, two daughters, a sister, seven grandchildren, and a niece and a nephew. He was predeceased by his brother a grandson, and his former wife, Marilyn Reeves. So Renaud's account of his contact experiences originally appeared in the 1960s in Gabriel Green's newsletter. And these were sort of sort of rejigged and, and reworked and, and appeared in various places over the years. But they begin this way. In the wee hours of the early morn, when the first golden rays of the sun are still probing the black veil of a cold December night for an opening through which to illuminate the world, I held my ninth radio communication with people from another world. For a few fleeting hours, I was privileged to share once more in the wisdom and kindly understanding of a race wiser by far than we. For these moments of light in a world of darkness, these beneficent beings from a planet far outside our own sun system discussed with me matters of importance to myself, to America, and to the people of the entire Earth. I am, however, ahead of myself, and therefore shall start at the beginning, which, as a popular song would say, is a very good place to start. So we get some nice misdirections, some nice in-media 
Ray sort of beginning in the middle, and a Sound of Music reference. So the first actual contact happened on July 8th, 1961. Renaud was messing around with a shortwave radio set, trying to pick up the BBC. He tunes into the station, turns down, and starts reading a book about astronomy. A few minutes later, he hears a beeping sound from his radio, and he's annoyed at first, but then he hears a voice that he describes as crystal clear and feminine. Bob, we'd like you to stay on this frequency for a while. Renaud says this hit him right between the eyes, and it took him a few minutes to realize what was going on, after which time, the voice continued. Bob, my associates and I have spent long hours deliberating on this contact. We have decided that it would be to our advantage if we carried out our plans, so as a result of this, I am now speaking to you in the first of what we hope will be a long series of fruitful ventures into the world of knowledge. You are our first contact with the people of your world. We have tried previously, but no results were ever obtained that were considered successful. These previous attempts were telepathic. At the time, we felt that since our lack of knowledge of English was very evident, mental images would be the only way to communicate. However, it appears we are wrong on this note. You have not developed your mental facilities to the level of which they are capable. Some of your people have had telepathic abilities, but your society in intolerance has branded them lunatics or harmless screwballs, to use a term common in your daily speech. Therefore, to contact you, weeks of research had to be done on the English language. The spoken word had to be correlated with the mental image. We felt this would not be difficult since we had but to monitor your radio and telescreen transmissions to the send. We were, however, unaware of the extensive use of recordings in both these media, and likewise did not consider that these recordings, unlike ours, did not retain telepathic as well as audiovisual impulses. For ten days, we monitored every available frequency using your language, but this achieved nothing because our analyzers were effective only with simultaneous sensory-extrasensory stimuli. The situation seemed hopeless. We could not land and contact directly due to atmospheric differences, and our long-range studies of language, studies hampered by the lack of the aforementioned impulses in the transmissions, were getting nowhere at light speed. In desperation, we chose to drop special sensing devices into your midst. These would give us the necessary psychosensory impulses with the corresponding sounds. To plant these, however, was a difficult task at best. The combination of words necessary psychosensory was actually pretty difficult for me to, uh, to get out the first three or four times. The voice then goes into detail about how they set this all up, and there's lots of technical stuff. But Renaud is attentive enough to us as his audience to say, for those not technically oriented, skip the next couple paragraphs. And I really appreciate him realizing that some of us might not care about some of that stuff. And after the scientific details are done with, including the wonderful line, we realized that a monotonous beeping would be the most demanding of attention. We now know that our decision was correct. I, I, I just love that. We get to the heart of why Bob has been contacted. Our main concern now is the possibility that your people will engage themselves in a nuclear war, which would inevitably mean the end of your race. We of other worlds cannot stop you from doing this. Our codes do not allow interference in the lives of men to the point of forceful action. Nowhere in the civilized galaxy are there any races that would impose themselves on any race to the extent of actually altering conditions on a world, 
without the express consent of that world's inhabitants. Therefore, we can only warn you that your present course can only lead in one direction, ultimate destruction of your people. We are somewhat heartened by the voluntary moratorium on nuclear weapon explosions now being observed by the major powers on your world. We feel, however, that this moratorium cannot continue forever, and there is but one answer to this question, complete disarmament. In future contacts, we will discuss how this can be accomplished, but for now, we will say only that there is no alternative to this if your race is to continue. The voice goes on to explain that obviously they've been watching humanity for a long time. They studied our history, and they realized that we are more or less at war with one another all the time. And they note the slaughter of millions in the two world wars, the lack of intelligent leadership, to use their words, and the inability to discuss things peacefully. In their interplanetary alliance, war is outlawed, but even if it wasn't, they explain, none of them would take the idea of going to war seriously anyway. The voice says that humanity is on a road to destruction. They've seen it happen elsewhere, and they don't want it to happen on Earth. Other beings, who they call their brothers, have been watching Earth since 1947. Ooh, there's a good year. And they're from local planets, and they feel the same way about humanity's potential for destruction as the voice speaking to Bob over the radio does. The voice also explains that they've been contacting various people on Earth on a regular basis, but because of the skepticism and ridicule they have faced, these contactees have concealed their experiences, or most of the contactees have. The voice says that the people who have publicly discussed their contact experiences are only about 10% of the total number who've actually been contacted. We of other sun systems have therefore come to this planet in the hopes of bolstering the words of our brethren. It is shocking to us to find that even so portentous an event as contact with people from outside your own world has had no great effect on your thinking. It's disconcerting to see that despite our warnings, your people are so set in their ways of thinking that they can ignore the fact that they are headed for doom unless drastic changes come to pass. We are therefore contacting you with our warnings and suggestions to your people, and we hope beyond hope that the information and words of peace that you will be receiving in the future will serve to do what others have failed to do, to awaken the people of the planet Earth to the perils of continued militaries and insane races for the perfect weapons. We can do only so much and no more, since, as we said before, we cannot stop you from killing yourselves if you find it necessary. Being human, members of the race of mankind, you are our brethren as much as those on our worlds are, and they and we are likewise yours. You therefore see that we take very great interest in your people and their happiness from a standpoint of being kin. Your people must do all themselves. They must rally to the cause of true peace without outside support. They must heed the words of their extraterrestrial brothers. They must preach this to their fellows, and they must be firm in their beliefs. They must not be swayed by even the most intense of temptation or threat. The voice promises to give humanity scientific and sociological information that will allow us to eliminate some of these problems. But some of the information has to be kept secret for a long time. The voice explains that Bob has been chosen to spread the word by whatever means he thinks would be best. Next, the mysterious voice is going to tell us about their planet. Perhaps you would be interested now in a description of our home planet. 
The 25 of us in this peace party, as it were, are all natives of the planet Corindor. My profession is in the field of psychology. Others in this party are active in teratology, the study of your world, anthropodynamics, the study of humans and their motivations, which borders on psychology, sociology, which you already know, chemistry and physics, also known to you, parapsychophysics, which by analysis would seem to be the study of the physics of parapsychics, including telepathy, psychokinesis, clairvoyance, clairaudience, ESP, and the other fields of mental activity beyond the five physical senses. We will explain some of these in detail in later contacts. Also, there are two genetico-biologists interested in the evolution and biophysics of your people. As usual, there is also the crew of the various ships, the analysts, the mathematicians, the console operators, and others associated with a venture into interstellar space. Our home planet is like your Earth in its appearance, although 2.74 times as large. Its surface gravity is 3.2 times that of Earth. Also, since our air is slightly richer in oxygen than yours, we cannot breathe yours without a period of adaption and are forced for the present to remain above your world. There is some talk about how their spaceships work, and we learned that they spent millions of dollars to develop their anti-gravity research, which is actually kind of interesting because I'm not sure, off the top of my head, that I recall discussion of space brothers or sisters talking in those kinds of economic terms. The voice explains that the contact has gone on longer than expected, and they're going to be in touch with Bob again on August 5th. The voice then signs off. We wish you the peace of mind that comes from knowing the great truth, and look forward to the next contact. But for now, we must leave the air. Your atmospheric conditions are changing now to the point where some of the beam on which my voice is carried might be scattered and received by others than yourself. Va iluse ino no si unir. That last bit is the Corindian language. I was not having some kind of episode. And uh, it's translated, actually, go in light till next we meet. And Bob admits to being overwhelmed, being chosen to spread what, in his words, are the word of love from a race 400 light years distant. Now, I should mention that I'm not getting these from the old Gabriel Green newsletters, but rather the website that is collecting all of Renaud's messages. And there's going to be a link to the site in the show notes. The reason I mention this is that there's a little footnote at the bottom of these messages noting that the copy has been proofread and typos were fixed sometime in 2008 and that there was improved wording. From the spot checking I did, I, I didn't notice any substantive changes from the originals. There is one instance where there was kind of a change, but Renaud notes that, and so I do go back and look at the original, as you will hear in a bit. Now, I, I should say also that the proofreading and typos were an improved wording. As far as I can tell, that was done by Renaud himself. So it isn't somebody else coming in and changing things because they think the contactee was, was wrong or something. Now, true to their word, Bob's new friends will contact him on August 5th. And Renaud's account of this shows a nice sense of drama and anticipation. The date was August 5th. It was exactly three weeks since that eventful evening in July, that night of nights when the space people informed me of my sudden promotion that day from lone wolf ufologist to the official spokesman for the Carendians, the Terran representative of the Alliance of Planets. The time was now slowly approaching sea hour, 2 a.m. My equipment was in top condition and was waiting silently for the momentous events that were to follow that evening. 
The newly constructed subspace transmitter, its final stage tube glowing with a soft, cheery red luminescence, sat anticipatingly in the center of the table to my left. I had spent a full three hours the evening before carefully aligning its circuits according to the instructions received in the first contact, and in a few moments it would experience its moment of truth. To my right, the old reliable Halicrafter's S38E receiver was hissing the contempt of space and time at me. It had been converted to SSR transmissions late in July, and it too was awaiting its test. Before me, the clock was finishing its round of that minute, and the second hand swept past twelve on its way round the face, filing away the used seconds in the infinite drawer marked time. As it passed thirty, I grew tense, waiting for the first faint hum that would herald the signal from a million miles away. My fingers were wrapped like rubber bands around the microphone, trying to compress it into oblivion. Fifteen seconds. There's the hum, growing louder by the moment. The noises of the universe released their grip on the antenna and reluctantly stepped aside for the immense signal that came from somewhere beyond the night. At 2 a.m., the contact commenced. Okay, first of all, yes, that was really well written. I enjoyed that. It was dramatic. It was it was it was tense. I I could feel that sort of feeling of of anticipating watching the clock. Some of it's a little overwritten, filed away into the the infinite drawer marked time. But one thing that jumped out at me is that he uh, mentioned having been a lone wolf ufologist and this is 1961. Um, and, uh, I think maybe 62 by the time, yeah, 63, actually, by the time it was printed in UFO international. And I wasn't sure if the term ufologist was being used. That's a little earlier than I usually have heard the word ufologist. So I did go back to issue 18 of uh, Gabriel Green's UFO international in the original, uh, Renaud refers to himself as uh, that night of nights when the space people informed me of my sudden promotion from lone wolf ufologer to um, official spokesman for the Corendians. So lone wolf ufologer. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard the term ufologer before this. I don't like it. I, I, I don't like ufologist. I think that's kind of Dumb, but I'm not sure I like ufologer. I like sorcerer. That that uh, that's a good term. Most of the conversation revolves around the operation of the Corindians' language device, which is basically a universal translator, like you've seen in many science fiction sorts of things. It's an interesting little bit of world building, but the explanations that Renaud gives are a bit clunky and kind of sci-fi-ish, and not in a great way. The machine is actually a special-purpose computer with a mass memory console, input-output, and the relevant circuits. The input consists of impulses relayed by our remote sensors that we have planted in various places around our country. These impulses consist of two components, the spoken sound and the corresponding mental impression. They are separated in the analyzer's input discriminator and fed to two circuits. The first receives the sound impulse and stores it for the moment. The other, the mental impulse section, instantly begins breaking down the image into basic components. And these components of the received telepathic signal are then compared with those in the machine's memory banks. Within a few microseconds, the analyzer finds an impulse exactly or nearly exactly like the received impulse. The coincidence triggers another storage bank in which are all the words in GK that correspond to the mental impulses in the first memory section. 
This releases the appropriate word and also the stored English word. Together, they are recorded as the output and are the translations of each other. The larger unit, received from Corridor, has no memory banks in itself, but is connected by direct SSR line to the Master Language Center's half-billion word memory network. With this device, there is no word that cannot be translated. Once we had learned the words, it was a simple matter to study your transmissions for proper placement, inflection, pauses, etc. I assume that has clarified any questions on this matter in your mind. No. No, sir, it does not clarify anything. You, you could have just said, we have a device that translates your language into our language, and that is perfectly fine. But I will say, I think it's interesting that their translation device separates the sound of the word from the mental image they receive telepathically as someone speaks the word. I, I think that's an interesting way to uh, address the fact that that language is, you know, w language exists within a broader context of the person's experiences and the lens th lenses through which they they view the world and things. I I think that's um actually pretty darn fascinating. They just could have used fewer words to do that. And in this contact, we get names. The woman Renaud has been communicating with is named Lynn Airy, L-I-N hyphen E-R-R-I. And the fellow who explained the translator is named Jaren, J-A-R-R-E-N. So what do they talk about? Well, Renaud and Lynn Airy are discussing the regrettable antagonism toward contactees by prominent flying saucer clubs. Of course, one reason for this, she explains, is that, quote, some of these who have been contacted are relating their story to their personal aggrandizement rather than to the constructive quest for world peace. On the other hand, there's the perennial problem of humans refusing to accept things they don't understand or that are outside their experience. Lynn Airy here really kind of does go all in on criticizing certain contactees. There are a few who, as the result of their contacts with extraterrestrial brothers, have become haughty and arrogant rather than peace-loving and humble in their service of humanity. There are also a few who are outright liars, if I may be that strong-worded. These harm our cause immensely. We spoke of this in the last contact, and we will mention it again because we cannot impress too strongly that for peace movements such as the Flying Saucer movement to succeed, there must be truth above all. Unfortunately, she doesn't name names, which actually is in keeping with the long-standing contactee tradition of not knocking other contactees' claims too hard, because you wouldn't want them poking holes in your own story, right? Now, Renaud has been chosen because he has the necessary characteristics of a good contactee, which she describes as devotion to the cause, love of men, desire for peace, and an unfailing drive despite obstacles. Lynn Airy is also highly critical of various government decisions to withhold information about flying saucers from the people. She says this policy is completely mad and that the public needs to be prepared because eventually there's going to be a landing. We also learned that various government leaders have been contacted by ambassadors from the Confederation. Kennedy was contacted, quote, during his time in the Pacific, uh, during World War II, I assume, and UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld was contacted three times. Khrushchev was contacted twice, and my favorite, we learned that Lenin 
was a passenger on a Confederation spaceship on no less than four occasions. And there's no mention of President Eisenhower and uh, Edwards Air Force Base, which I, I think is interesting. But following those revelations, we turn to a more serious topic, which is fine and in keeping with the whole spirit of contacteeism. But I really want to hear more about Conrad Lennon's adventures on a flying saucer. But there's no time for that because Lynn Airy has important information for us. After a few moments of informal storytelling concerning each other's histories, we turned to the question all men are asking. What can be done about atomic weapons? What can these weapons do? And how can they be made unnecessary? Her voice grew serious, losing its usual merry quality. Let me first tell you what you face if you engage in atomic warfare. Over 95% of your population will be wiped out in the first few days. The rest will survive the war itself if a condition to be spoken of later does not occur. These few survivors will degenerate to unreasoning savages and live the lives of prowling scavengers, hunting incessantly for what little food is available, and, of finding nothing else, indulging in a meal of human flesh. The survival instinct is very strong indeed, even to the extent of destroying what principles one possesses. These that are left will, because of lack of hospital treatment and shelter from radiation sickness, or by the hand of their brother, die out within a few years. The remaining living creatures will slowly perish, and within 20 years, the planet Earth will be a barren hell, unfit for habitation. As such, it will be sterilized to erase a gruesome memory from the pages of the Diary of the Universe. As to what can be done about them, they must be completely dismantled. All countries possessing them must do so. In a later contact, in which we will discuss the United Nations, we shall advise you on how to strengthen the group to become the world's true leader. That really is a grim assessment and probably not too inaccurate. It actually, if you've seen the movie Threads, the BBC film Threads from 1984, I believe, um, it reminds me a lot of that, only much less horrific. Threads is uh, one of the few films that uh, frightened me enough and disturbed me enough that I will, I will never – I will never watch it again. It, it it gave me nightmares. So quick recommendation, go see Threads. I, I, I saw it on YouTube. There's a Blu-ray out there, I think. Um, chilling, chilling stuff. Oh, and while we're talking aftermath of nuclear war, there's a, a cartoon, um, I think also from Britain from the 80s, called When the Wind Blows. It's an animated film about a sweet little old elderly couple who are involved in a uh, 1980s nuclear exchange and, and the aftermath of that. It is also um, relentlessly um, sobering as things about nuclear war are. Um, some of you may mention that, is it the, not the day after, um, the, the day after, the American sort of one, the TV movie with Steve Gutenberg. And uh, I can't really take Steve Gutenberg seriously in, in any sort of serious film. So uh, don't watch that. Watch When the Wind Blows. Watch Threads. Oh, um, for a real classic, this is from 1965, I think. It's another BBC one called The War Game. And uh, it was judged back in 1965 so disturbing that it was not shown to the public until the 1980s. So check out The War Game. 
as well. It's kind of a hobby of mine, these, these post-apocalyptic, uh, very realistic nuclear war scenarios. But it, I was going to say we're getting off topic, but no, this is exactly what uh, Lynn Airy was, was talking about. And her solution seems kind of simple. Just get rid of the nukes. It's incredibly simple. It's also you know, pretty much impossible. I, I hope whatever information she eventually shares involving how to strengthen the UN is, uh, is, is handy. She does explain that until the nukes can be dismantled, the, the UN should take control of all nuclear weapon capability. And she also explains, here's a callback for us, she explains that in the future, prior choice economics will be how things work on Earth. This probably isn't a surprising statement since it was published in Gabriel Green's newsletter and he was the guru of prior choice economics. If you're not in the loop on prior choice economics, check out our Gabriel Green episode. I can't promise you'll understand but I promise that I sort of kind of tried to explain it. She tells Renaud that he and others must work tirelessly for peace, contacting politicians and trying to make a difference. She promises to contact him again on August 19th. Renaud closes this account by saying that he vowed to work until his demise for universal peace. If you like The Saucer Life and want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content. It's been almost a year since we started it up, but we've got a nice library of materials on our Patreon, not just from The Saucer Life, but from our show Great Lakes Lore as well. You can check it out at patreon.com slash chizomedia or via the link in the show notes. And you can check out past episodes for 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 free. Um, no bonus stuff, but past episodes at saucerlife.com or on your favorite podcast app. And as always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. Um, on Twitter for now, um, it's getting worse, but uh, we're, we're still there. Um, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can also contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. Uh, we've got some feedback from our Zine Scene episode about um, APRO, uh, the APRO newsletter in the year 1972. Kyle asks, um, my question for the episode is, recent history has shown us that there is a market for things like drunk history content. Has your experience and feedback indicated to you that NyQuil ufology might be an emerging market? Do you intend to be a trailblazer into this hypothetical new field of content? I, I really should do more episodes on um, on cold medicine. It was a, a fine experience, and um, I don't think there was much degradation in quality. Uh, Lester has uh, a couple questions. He wants to know if FOMCAT still exists or COMCAT still exists in some form. That's the, uh, the APRO's computer punch card organization system for records. I have not been able to find out. I think a lot of APRO files, oh gosh, I used to know where they went. I, I don't know if FOMCAT still exists in some form. It would be nice if somebody converted it to floppy disk or, uh, or, or something. That would, be, uh, that would be good. And Lester also asks if um, or asks why uh, KUFOS, the Center for UFO Studies, hasn't had the same sort of like meltdown demise or, or whatever as, as organizations like APRO and, and NICAP or, or gotten kind of large and silly like MUFON. And I think it's because the Center for UFO Research um, or Center for UFO Studies, rather, is um, very narrowly focused on sort of providing grants for specific projects. They're not 
out there, as far as I know, they were never out there doing a lot of advocacy or, or pestering the Air Force or, or Congress or things like that. So I, I think keeping a lower profile and um, trying to be a little more, um, I don't know, legit and professional and scholarly maybe worked to their, uh, to their advantage. All right. Well, thank you for the feedback. We always enjoy feedback. And let's get back to Bob Renaud. Now, it would be um, an extensively long thing to go through each of these transmissions, even with just the initial 40 that appeared in the 1960s. So I'm going to pick out some of the more interesting bits uh, throughout parts of the 60s to to share with you. And again, I'm not entirely positive. My impression is that Bob Renaud probably produced more words of contact experience than any other contactee I have encountered thus far. There is a lot here. And don't worry, I'll put a link in the show notes, like I said, to the complete archive so you can check it out yourself. And I should note that there's a book of the initial contacts. Uh, it's available on Kindle. And it's one of the ebooks made from Wendell Stevens's editions. Uh, they all start off with the title, UFO Contact from Corridor, is, is what they call this one. And while they're inexpensive, I warn you that the formatting is pretty awful on those books. And I would recommend getting the information from the official site in, uh, in, in any case, because it's free and it's the up-to-date stuff and um, you don't have to pay money for a, a subpar basically PDFification of something that gets turned into a Kindle book. Th those books are awful. Um, so anyway, uh, let's go to August 28th, 1961, where we learn about something called the Somnivision Project. What was the Somnivision Project? Lynn Airy explains. The operation to which we refer is called the Somnivision Project. With it, ideas are imprinted into selected people during sleep, which these subjects then credit to themselves. In principle, the human mind is a form of energy, independent in itself of physical bonds, but in practice always associated with some form of anthropomorphic medium of expression. When in the body, each mind has a distinct frequency of operation, dependent on the particular characteristics of that brain which it inhabits. While we do not completely understand it, we know that it has to do with electromagnetic circuit dimensions within the neurons. So, they've been giving people thoughts while they sleep, and allowing them to think those thoughts are their own. Nothing disturbing about that at all, is there? It's explained that it is more effective to do this while sleeping than while awake, but they're able to influence people during waking hours, but only subconsciously. And this is what some of our daydreams might be, the subconscious influencing from the Corendians. As a result of this information that has been implanted through the Somnivision project, humans have developed radio and television and nuclear power and the airplane. So if you think human ingenuity developed those things, you're wrong. It was the space thought beam thing. Now, they say they can override the conscious mind, but that would be considered forceful intervention and is not allowed. So Renaud's contacts throughout 1961 were over shortwave radio. But in 1962, he would experience a new form of communication. 
On December 3rd, 1961, I received a communication detailing how to convert one of my TVs to receive video transmissions from their crafts. It involved making many changes and components within the TV to alter its operational frequencies. I also received by mail an adapter that connected to the antenna terminals. Having completed the modifications about a week later, there was nothing to do but wait. And wait. And wait. Receiving parts in the mail to build a video screen to talk to aliens reminds me of building the interocitor in the film This Island Earth, kind of. He finally has the video contact on January 6th, 1962. He's treated to a panoramic sweep around the solar system, and then he's shown the inside of the ship, and he sees Lynn Airy for the first time. She was a breathtakingly beautiful blonde lady who appeared to be about 20 years old. She stood there quietly for a few moments, knowing, no doubt, that I wanted to drink in the details. Her hair was shoulder-length and softly wavy. Her skin appeared to be light, and she was every inch a woman. I had asked her in a radio contact to describe herself, and she said, I'm 5 feet 4 inches tall, 122 pounds, 37, 24, 36, and I'm the equivalent of 74 in your Earth years. In our society, that's the prime of life. After that, I had not known quite what to expect, but I looked forward to seeing her on TV. Obviously, the ladies aged very gracefully on Corridor. Her clothing was loose and two-piece, rather like the top and pants of ski clothes, but a softer, sheerer material. The waist was cinched in with a band that indicated her position by its color, which she said was yellow. She wore a pin on the right collar and a tiny chain and locket around her neck. The shoes were an integral part of the pants and were fastened by some sort of elastic just above the ankle. Altogether, it made an inspirational combination. Now, Renaud notes that there was an infamous, his words, typo concerning her measurements that had been corrected in this internet version. In the interests of journalistic integrity, I checked this out in issue 19 of UFO International, and the overall description is a little more 1962 than the updated, corrected, still a bit much version. At this point, the camera swung directly on Lynn Airy. She was a breathtakingly beautiful blonde who appeared to be about 18 or 20 years old. She stood there quietly for a few moments, knowing, no doubt, that I wanted to drink in the details. Her hair was shoulder-length and softly wavy. Her skin appeared to be light, and such a figure I've never seen. Talk about stacked. I had asked her earlier in a radio contact to describe herself, and this is what she had said. I'm 5 feet 4 inches tall, 122 pounds, 37, 22... 26. Three exclamation points. Yes, 37, 22, 26. Then had come another shocker. I'm the equivalent of 74 of your years of age, which in our society is the prime of life. After that, I had not known quite what to expect, but I looked forward to seeing her on TV, so this was really startling. I can't say it detracted from her total image to know how old she actually was, because who cares if she looks like that? Wow! Just the sight of all that loveliness was enough incentive for me to renew my vow to carry out all the Corendians' wishes to the limits of my abilities. Just for Lynn Airy alone, I would move mountains. Settle down, Bob. And from there on, the description of the clothing is identical. And and yes, those um those those measurements, uh, thirty-seven, twenty-two, twenty-six. That I don't think that 
works very well. I do think it's interesting that he chose to slightly revise the description to be a little less creepy and fawning, but decided even in the updated sort of less horny version that he still thinks we need to know her measurements. So we've gone from radio transmissions to television transmissions. And later in 1962, there would be the first of many personal contacts between Renaud and the Carendians. And the first one took place on December 29th, 1962. And Bob's account of this opens in a pretty straightforward tone. Ordinarily, in writing about personally meeting our brothers from beyond the night, contactees seem to feel duty-bound to include every little detail. Not so with me. Objectively speaking, there is no benefit gained from knowing that the spaceman is partial to peanut butter sandwiches or likes to get green stamps with his purchases. What is vital is the message they bring, the wisdom they display, the compassion and understanding for Earthians that is inherent in all their personalities. Therefore, I think it best to forego trivia in favor of that which is paramount. Of course, I have to note that he has no problem including every possible bit of technical trivia of everything. So basically, it's best to forego trivia he doesn't personally find interesting in favor of that which is paramount. Honestly, I might be more interested in whether or not they eat peanut butter sandwiches. The contact itself is kind of low-key. He receives instructions in the mail. He says he meets them at 2 in the morning in front of his house, and they, they drive south for several miles turn on a dirt road, and enter a tent-like shelter that was made of a transparent material, and they sit down and start talking. No flying saucer, no magical transport beams, nothing like that. The aliens show Bob a number of items, including an anti-gravity device and a weapon that they demonstrate uh, melt, that melts able, – it's able to melt rock, I guess is the best way to say it. They also give Bob some film to develop with instructions that he is not to show the resulting pictures to anyone. Bob noted that he returned the negatives to them, quote, because they showed far too much, end quote. In an update, Bob provides some corroborating evidence about the site where he met the two space brothers. And, and their names, by the way, were Ori Val, a mathematician, and Gary Soul, an electronic engineer. It's Gary, G-E-R-Y, so you, you know it's alien. And Sen Kor, who is a linguist. In May of 1963, a couple of residents of the town where the meeting was held were hiking along the dirt road. They came upon the site of the meeting and found the rock that had been melted. It had spread in a rough circle as it cooled, forming an anomaly for which they had no explanation. They apparently contacted some authorities beyond the local police. It was not reported in the media, so I assumed that it was suppressed. Word-of-mouth reports indicated that a few military vehicles were seen in the area the day after the discovery. The following day, an unmarked, winch-equipped flatbed truck of the type used for carrying wrecked cars went up the dirt road and came out with something on the bed that was covered with a canvas tarpaulin. No doubt, the rock sits in a warehouse or storage site somewhere, and every so often someone wonders, where the hell did that thing come from? Let them continue to wonder. So, the nice thing about the organization of these contact reports on the website is that there's some indication of the main topic of the content. This sounds like a simple thing, but when you've plowed through hundreds of pages looking for something interesting to talk about, you appreciate little things like knowing the report you click on is going to talk about television contact or whatever. Or for example, a report entitled Racism. 
Space Brothers and Sisters, this is 1962-ish, remember? Space Brothers and Sisters acknowledge that racism, discrimination, and segregation are wrong, but emphasize that the protesting tactics of the civil rights movement are counterproductive because they will scare off potential allies. And they tell African Americans, quote, have patience. You have waited this long. What are a few more months? Don't do anything you'll regret. You have a good cause. Don't debase it by rashness. And they have a different message for the people they sarcastically refer to as the white supermen. To the white supermen, we can only say, as your hipsters might phrase it, like, come off that gig man, split the Dark Ages scene, and get grooved to the 20th century. A helpful message from the Space Brothers, to be sure. We also get another discussion of the flying saucer scene with the Space Brothers and Sisters explaining that the best thing to happen would be a worldwide unification movement of various flying saucer clubs and organizations, such as Gabriel Green is attempting to do with his amalgamated flying saucer clubs of America. And I really hope Green was paying for this good press. Another topic that caught my eye was the contact from November 25th, 1963 on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Lynn Airy reported the following. We greet you in great sorrow this day, brother. The events of these past few days have filled us with sadness. Last Friday will long be remembered by your people and ours, for it occasioned the tragic loss of a truly great man and leader, John F. Kennedy. We were in the process of planning a contact with him when the news reached us. Immediately, all operations ceased and we rushed to the communications center here on Mars. As we entered, radio receivers monitoring Earth frequencies were proclaiming the distressing news. John F. Kennedy had been assassinated and was dying. In a matter of moments, this news transmission had been switched onto the Universal Broadcasting Relay, and all the Alliance was informed. Within 30 minutes, an official day of mourning was proclaimed for the entire Alliance, which was to be the day of his funeral, the radios having sadly reported that John F. Kennedy had died. Flags on all worlds were flown at half-mast, a symbol never before seen, since our means of indicating death of a high official are very different. This had a great emotional effect on all of us, and more than ever, we felt a oneness with the people of Earth in this hour of tragedy. They're also able to get camera discs placed in the correct locations on Earth to be able to watch the entire funeral procession and funeral, which was broadcast instead of the regular programming on all Alliance planets. Now, we are going to finish this first part of our exploration of Bob Renaud's experiences with his tour of a base in Massachusetts that took place on December 7th, 1963. It was a cold Saturday morning, and Bob got up at 4 a.m. after being woken by a telepathic message. Ori Val said they were going to pick him up in an hour and to be ready. Bob wanted to know if he could bring his camera and his tape recorder, but was told not. That's a little predictable. Bob should have known better. Now, this is interesting. As the car pulls up, someone gets out. The door swung open and I stepped out of the car. Here was the man who would be my substitute for this and future contacts. To say that he was my spitting image would be the understatement of the century. We shook hands in the standard form of greeting, and he said to me in what I assumed was my voice, few people recognize their own voice from an external source, have no fear, brother, nobody will be the wiser. I've studied you long enough to automatically react exactly as you would in any given situation. If I get away with this, it'll be a great topic of conversation when next we meet. 
This is really clever. Bob's going to be gone for a while, and people might wonder where he is, right? I mean, he lives with his parents, so they might be curious. So we solve the problem not by erasing people's minds so they don't remember him being gone or traveling back in time to five minutes after he left. No, we're going to have somebody pretend to be Bob while Bob is off with the Space Brothers. I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before. Um, and what's great is it's completely I don't, I don't I don't want to say plausible, but you know if if you were to ask the, the question, well, Mr. Renaud, if if you were off seeing this underground base in Massachusetts, why didn't your parents in whose home you lived notice that you were gone? Well, there, my alien double was there, and he's able to react exactly as I would in any situation. Oh, well, gosh, no further questions. So Bob and his friends fly in a craft, which goes on for a while, and then it goes through an opening that appears in the Earth. It's an actual underground base. The Space Brothers gain entry by inserting an ID card into a card reader, and they're w- riding along a conveyor belt, basically a moving sidewalk. It's, it's like the airport. They go through some doors and wind up in an office. We entered a small room. It was about 20 by 20, and the ceiling was 12 feet high. It glowed a soft cream white. The floor was carpeted wall to wall with a thick mint green covering. To our left was a young and very lovely girl, seated at a modern-style desk, apparently of mahogany and highly polished. She greeted us with a smile and said, Good morning, brothers. I have the security pass here for our Terran guest. She then motioned me over to the desk and asked me to sign my name on a line on a form. The pen I used was a special type that deposits a magnetic ink. When this had been done, she inserted the card into a device on the desk. An indicator light pulsed red and then glowed green. The processing will take a minute, Bob. Look around if you wish. One thing I cannot get over is how everything he experiences on these spacecraft seems very Earth-like. Security cards, moving sidewalks. It's basically the future as imagined in 1963. So... Which isn't which isn't strange for contactee stuff. I, I mean, I'm, obviously, but it it just strikes me. It's the colors, the mahogany desk, the female secretary, the the security pass. It's all very earth like. Bob does get his security pass eventually, and they continue to explore the base. They come to the communications room, and we check in with Bob's double back at home. The room was about 50 feet to a side and 15 feet high. It was full of electronic equipment, a lot of it unknown to me. We went over to a panel manned by a lovely brunette. Ori Val spoke to her in Carendian. It has a beautiful musical quality. And she rose from her seat for a second to close the switch above her. Seconds later, I saw on a screen my double, sitting on the couch in my room. I thought to myself, so the transceiver is TV, too. I might as well have spoken as the young lady said, yes, in full color and depth as well. Ori asked, would you like to speak to him? I said yes, and he handed me a mic. Apparently, he was watching us also because he spoke first. Your mother's a delightful woman, Bob, and and your father's a good man. I've been psych probing, and I've learned much. Your two animal friends here are with me now, and we are getting along famously. I expect we'll have no difficulty here. I asked, did you have any trouble finding everything, brother? I have a large variety of literature available in the cabinet over there in the enclosed area. Ah, yes. 
So I discovered, I'm torn at the moment between your stacks of Scientific Americans and your Playboys. Both appeal greatly to me for different reasons, to be sure. He winked and smiled devilishly. Ah, I see that Ellen finds my remarks a bit embarrassing. But after all, once you can tear yourself away from the centerfold, there's much of great interest to be read. Ellen, the girl at the controls, was blushing a bit. She said, Arta, you have a lecherous mind. They both laughed, and the signal from the transceiver switched off. Hey, Bob, found your porn. Good stuff. This may be one of the greatest passages in any contactee account. I, I just I just love this. Um, your mom's great. Your dad's a swell guy. Your pets are awesome. And check out Miss January. It's just, it's just strange. Leaving the communications room, our crew examines other areas, such as the power generation area and the main computer control room. There's also an area where newly arrived visitors are conditioned to the atmosphere on Earth, as was discussed earlier. Finally, we're able to meet one of the masters. Bob's descriptions of the alien base are pretty detailed, and they sound way more enticing than some of the alien bases we've discussed previously. Um, he says that the, the wall, it's wall-to-wall carpeting, it's light blue with piles so thick it seemed to be a solid mass. Um, it's a pleasure to walk on, he says. The walls are painted sort of a creamy white, which contrasts tastefully with the rug, in his words. On the far wall, a large painting of ageless life hung by itself in all its commanding beauty. Here and there, flowering plants filled the air with a delicate perfume. Now, these plants, they look like roses, but they're a darker red, and they feel like satin when you touch them. There's also photos of their homeworld and furnishings that are all in blue, sort of a, a darker blue than the overhead sky, he says, and they all seem to be covered in velvet. So there's there's five chairs and two long sort of sectionals that, that curve around the corners of the room, and uh, it, it's a really relaxing, relaxing place, he says. And, and they wait for a while, and they offer Bob magazines, most of which seem to be alien versions of science magazines. There's no alien uh, equivalent of Playboy from what we can hear, but it's probably a good thing that Bob wasn't looking at such stuff because soon someone special enters the room. It's Lynn Airy in, as he says, all of her rapturous loveliness. It is very difficult at this point to describe my emotions. She came directly to me, took my hand in hers, and spoke in her soft, melodic voice. We of Corendor bid you welcome to our humble abode. If she had recited the first ten pages of the phone book, I could not have been less thrilled. Just to be in the same room with this Athena was more than I deserved. Once again, Bob, I urge you to settle down. Along with Lynn Airy is the master, Callan Lee, who prefers just to be called Callan. Callan's conversation topics are mostly related to current events. He's happy that there's been a bit of a thaw in the Cold War, but also concerned that there are still people who believe that bloodshed is the only way to solve problems. Still, the Space Brothers are confident that humanity is moving towards some kind of global government. Another thing that the Master is happy about is that Linus Pauling has received the Nobel Prize for his work because his motivations, they say, are humanitarianism and love of his fellows. Those are the same qualities that Bob needs to have if he's going to continue to be the Space Brothers' messenger to the people of Earth. And then the Master explains that he has a message for Bob from one of his neighbor's daughters, who's about five years old. The note reads as follows. 
Brother Earthman, she says. My name is Killer Ray, which sounds like the best rap name ever. Killer Ray is, is, is part of our, our group now. He's going to say a few words. But Killer Ray um, says, my name is Killer Ray, and I should like to tell you something, which is my own personal belief. I think most of the other children feel this way too, but I didn't ask them about it anyway. I like this kid. She just says what she wants. I often ask my mother and father about Earth. I think they don't like to talk about it because they say I'm too young to know about Earth, probably because they know about Bob's Playboys. I know all about Karendor and Aklandi and Arcturia, but no one will tell me about Earth, so I'm going to ask Master Callan Lee to give this to you. I want to know and love Earth like all the other worlds. My mother and father don't know I'm doing this, or they might stop me, so please don't let them know about this letter if you see them. Is something wrong on Earth, Brother Earthman? Do you live as we do, or are all the stories I hear from grown-ups about how you don't love each other really true? I don't want to think that you do not love and live as we do on Corendor. That would make me very sad. Please write to me, Brother Earthman, and tell me things about your world that will make me happy for you. Lovingly yours, Killer Ray. Bob is very concerned that it's going to be difficult to tell this little girl that Earth is not as good and kind and loving as the other planets she talks about, so he's going to have to take some time to properly frame his response. The master is okay with that and explains that the little girl is taught as all the children on the planet are taught and that humanity has a long way to go to get even to where that little girl and the other children on the planet are as far as their spiritual maturity. There's another discussion about the dangers of atomic power and atomic weapons and that if humanity gets to survive, then humanity must turn our, we must turn our science rather to peaceful uses. Thank you, Master. Very, very fascinating. The Master takes off, and Bob is able to talk to Lynn Airy for about half an hour, he says, about nothing in particular. We get some more gushing about her loveliness, and soon it's time to leave. And she wants to come along on the ride, too. I was elated, and they seemed honored by her presence. Who wouldn't be? Soon we had arrived back at the small ship. It had seemed like only moments since we left it. We climbed aboard, I with much reluctance. Leaving this wonderful place was difficult at best. We rode out to the opening under the area four doors, and up we went. Scant seconds later, we had landed directly on the road in front of Darren Sen's car. We all climbed out except Ori Val, who waited in the clearing for their return. On the way back, Lynn Airy sat beside me, and we spoke of things pertinent to future contacts. All too soon, I was home. My folks had left for a while, so we drove right up. With a feeling of sadness welling up inside, I said farewell for a while to these wonderful people from beyond. As they drove out of sight, part of me went with them. We will return next time and continue following Robert Renaud's accounts of his contacts. Are we seeing a love connection bloom with Lynn Airy? Are there more underground bases around the United States? Tune in, and we'll answer all of these questions and more. And thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels, and we'll be addressing those next time. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.